Well, welcome, everybody. This is a new type of episode. Rob is calling this our fringe episode, our Halloween episode. We're going to kind of take our nerd lab and combine it with a potluck and end up with something that our editor is going to hate. And just to prepare her, we spent 50 minutes getting ready to hit the record button, which is probably longer than the episode's going to go. Yeah, that's definitely true. And what's funny, you called this a combination of a nerd lab and a potluck. And I think it's a little potlucky because I don't know how prepared we are to have this conversation, <laughs> but eh, so it goes. Somebody here did their homework. <laughs> Somebody. One of us. It's Trevor, without question. What a shock. I know, go figure. <laughs> I feel attacked. We <laughs> we have had on the board just, I don't know, some ideas that I think that we believe in, some things that we wanted to talk about, but have just never really come to the forefront of topics that we're going to put a full episode behind. And yeah, so that's kind of what we're doing today. Probably don't deserve their own episode, even though at one point we were planning a whole episode on each one of these. An episode? You don't deserve an episode. <laughs> So we do have our side interviews recorded, and we'll probably use a few of those with these. So you're going to hear more from our sides, and those will hopefully be professional. Okay. Are we ready for this? I'm totally ready. Let's get spooky, Trevor. Let the Fringe episode begin. <laughs> for nearly two years, Fast Talk Laboratories has brought you the craft of coaching with Joe Friel, the ultimate resource to become a better, more successful, and happier coach. We've bundled some of the most popular pieces of content from all 14 Craft of Coaching modules to reshare in what we're calling the Craft of Coaching with Joe Friel Coaches Picks, which includes a star-powered panel of featured experts like Dr. Stacey Sims, Dr. Andy Kirkland, Jim Miller, Victoria Brumfield, and Jim Rutberg. This incredible library will provide a lasting legacy and guiding light for endurance coaches for many years to come. Check out the Craft of Coaching with Joe Friel Coaches Choice at FastTalkLabs.com. So first off, we are going to talk about blood flow restriction training, BFR, <laughs> because it's spooky. First off, for the people who aren't creeped out by this, what is blood flow restriction and Grant training? is the one person who's done it. So basically what happens is you put on a cuff above the extremity in which you are trying to train. And that cuff is inflated and it cuts off some of the blood flow to that area that you are training. It is a wildly interesting feeling and leave it at that. It is one of the more painful things I've ever done in my life. And I've done some painful things. I mean, but the purpose isn't pain. No, it isn't pain. I, I will say this. It is a really beneficial byproduct. Because you're in a place, yeah, the pain is because you're in a place when you're doing BFR that you're trying to do it for in a period of time and very, very quickly into that period of time, you really want to be done. Mm. It is that uncomfortable. And so there's a bit of mental training to get through that period of time because you know, you're not getting, you're not hurting, hurting, you're not actually injuring yourself, but it is very, very uncomfortable. Well, how do you know when to stop? There are protocols on how long you do it, how long you're off, on, off, on, off. And this is one of the places with BFR that there's still a lot of scientific debate. It's just exactly what the protocol should be, five on, two off, something along those lines. So different people that do this do it in different 
capacities for different lengths of time. But usually you're going to have a prescription of what you're doing, very much like a workout. And it's kind of a truncated workout. So, so this sounds like a great moment for a disclaimer that all the fringe-worthy things that we're talking about, please don't just go home, strap a blood pressure cuff to a limb and, you know, black out. Yeah, yeah. Probably not the best thing to do with like a homemade tourniquet, right? Yeah. And just give it a go. Which is important because, well, first of all, here's the technical definition. It is basically using a cuff similar to a blood pressure cuff. And then I'm just reading here, at a pressure occluding venous return from the limb while only partially restricting arterial inflow. What sounds horrible. Yeah, so blood yeah. is flowing into the limb, but not necessarily so able to take it out. Yes, right. Because the pressure going in is higher than the pressure coming out. Which is an issue. And when they talk about the prescription, they brought up exactly what you brought up, which is there is no standard right now. And it is difficult because everybody's different. Somebody, right. Some people have a really big leg. Some people have a small leg. Some people have high blood pressure. Some people have low blood pressure. So just saying, let's get it to a particular pressure is going to have different effects on everybody. So right, right now, the recommendation is never 100% occlusion. So use percentage. And they say somewhere in the range of 40% to 80% of whatever pressure is needed to completely block mm. blood so, flow. So Trevor, you're obviously the person who did their research on this. What is the mechanism behind blood flow restriction? Wow, that look. Was that a... No, no. That, I'm going to test you because I don't believe you did no, your research. No, you did. that I was think. a look of smugness because he teed you up beautifully. Yes. And he was very proud of himself was for a, doing it. It was an amazing <laughs> transition. That's what he was so proud of. There we go. So if anybody is interested, I'm actually going to say for each of these... I read a review for each, and I'll give you the names that were actually really good reads. So the first one is aerobic training with blood flow restriction for endurance athletes, potential benefits and considerations of implementation. Uh, it was a good review. And basically they went through the, the three potential aerobic adaptations that you're going for, which is raising your VO to max, raising your, your threshold power and economy. And basically said, there hasn't been a ton of research. Blood flow restriction training is new and it's much more applied in strength sports. So going into the weight room and, and lifting using BFR. So less research in endurance athletes, but they basically said there's some evidence that even in elite athletes, you'll see some improvement in VO2 max. There's probably the most evidence that you're going to see improvements in threshold and they particularly focused on OBLA, so onset of blood lactate accumulation. And then said, no research on economy, but there's indirect evidence that it can improve economy. And some of the mechanisms that they looked at were, A, when you do this to the your blood flow, your heart goes, I don't like that. And it forces your heart to beat harder. So you can actually train at a lower intensity but get some of that stimulation of central conditioning that you would get from much higher intensity work. So they do constantly say, actually, there could be benefits to just doing this in the off season at low intensities and get some of the benefits that you'd potentially get from, from high intensity training. The other thing you're going to see, because you're basically taking the whole way the body's supposed to work and blowing it up essentially, is because there's less blood flow, less oxygen to the muscles, even at lower intensities, you're now going to start recruiting fast-twitch muscle fibers. You're now going to have more buildup of metabolites from anaerobic metabolism. 
that the body can't clear and the body can't deal with. So again, at lower intensities, you're going to see the sort of effects and adaptive signals that you would normally get from very high intensity work. Let's hear a little more about the potential mechanisms of BFR from Dr. Stacy Sims. It's causing a cascade of stress signals. So if you're looking at occlusion and reducing oxygen to a particular amount of tissue, then it's going to upregulate and try to create an environment where if it encounters that stress again, it has the ability to overcome it. So it is used often for more vascularization. It induces heat shock protein, which people think is just for heat shock, but it's not. It's for any kind of stress. So there is some value in it, but when we look at some of the data, the training should be nailed first, and then this can come as a kind of the icing on the training. Right. So this is a marginal gain, not yes, a primary thing. Exactly. So a couple of things that this has led to is rehab being in a place where somebody is limited on what they're able to do because of a, an injury or something along those lines, you're getting more from less. You can spend a really low amount of time and hopefully, according to the research, get a little bit of a nice return in terms of effort and in terms of training. The other thing is, this is what we're talking about, the inability to clear because of the very limited venal return that's where the pain comes in. And this is another kind of untested thing that multiple people that I've talked to that use BFR or prescribe BFR are in a place that is kind of going to that, yeah, your heart rate comes up because your body doesn't quite know how to deal with it. But the response of the body to that type of uncomfortableness is very similar too. So why is the heart rate coming up? Partially because of the lack of venal flow, partially because of the pain. There's a bunch of things. So I've tried this and I've had success with it. I feel like it's definitely helped me. And I've done it in a couple different capacities. When I had the broken collarbone, this was something we tried in terms of a rehab piece. And then um, just on the bike. Yeah. And that's when I've seen this put into practice. And, and there's at least one local rehab facility here that is big into BFR. You can use it both in a strength training modality, mm -hmm. uh, but then also in an aerobic modality yep. as well, right? Riding your bike on the trainer with a BFR cuff on your leg, yep. you know, maybe makes that VO2 max workout a little bit more intense. And so there's multiple ways to use this tool. Well, and in fact, what you're doing is you're essentially doing a low intensity workout and getting a VO2 max or threshold mm -hmm. response which is what they're trying to do with this. So you're riding at 70% FTP, but it, it's akin to 95 or 100%. If that. Yeah. <laughs> if that, good, good luck with that. Yeah, huh? you're, pushing, you're pushing a small number. Let's just say that. How often were you using this in rehab? Like what was the frequency and when, how long? When it was collarbone and we were looking for rotator cuff help and, and things like that because my shoulders are pretty screwed up to begin with. And when you break a collarbone, it gets worse. Good luck with that. That was two to three times a week. So every time I was going in to do typical strength work, I was finishing with some shoulder work with BFR. For how many weeks? I did it for four to six. Wow. But like I said, my shoulders are in pretty bad shape. So there, you know, there was a there was a good deal of not just rehab, but like just prophylactic strength work in there that we we're trying to get done. In terms of BFR for endurance training, that was something I was doing about once a week, hmm. and just coming in and and typically during the off season. 
When you're doing that, are you doing both legs? Because oftentimes a rehab is going to be just BFR on the injured, the affected limb. Mm-hmm. When you're doing endurance training, it's on both legs? Yeah. Yeah. And you can do it as one and then switch to the other, or you can mm-hmm. do it on both. It, some of the limitation is how many units are available, right? Because yeah, sure. it's not the most convenient thing in the world to do. You got a hose hanging off the cuff and a unit next to you. Can I put my Normatec boots on and then get on the bike? <laughs> I would like to see you pedaling with the Normatec boots on. Do anything. Why with am Norma I belting on the on? saddle so much? <laughs> <laughs> Little cleats on the bottom of the Normatecs. <laughs> Be amazing. <laughs> that would be fun. That would be this great. This sounds like one of those viral videos of people running in the treadmill that just eat it. Yeah, right. said this is just a cup. <laughs> well, I think it could be part of G- uh, Rob's Halloween costume, too. Just a go. pair of Normatec boots yep. and just walk. I-, I don't know. Like like a half Michelin. I want to see yeah. somebody in the full Normatec, like the arms yes, the, and the, the legs, like walking around going, look at the gains I'm getting. <laughs> huge. I am huge. So... I would say research is pointing in a pretty good direction that, yes, there are benefits to this. I think there's enough evidence for that. It just comes with a giant asterisk or a caution because, A, you overdo this, it's dangerous. Like yeah. we're talking, give you an aneurysm, dangerous. So you really want to be careful with it. That's why they say, so they talk about AOP, which is arterial occlusion pressure, the pressure at which there is no blood flow. Right. And they're saying... Never do that. Right. And a lot of these machines will calibrate for you now. You put yeah. it on. Yeah. It, it does a calibration to see how much it can squeeze you, basically, yeah. based on musculature and fat and things like that. But, yeah, this is something that yeah, I wouldn't be trying this at home. This right. is go to somebody who knows what they're doing. Right. And so the recommendations, as I said, it's a real broad recommendation, is 40 to 80% of AOP, which is a big range. Mm-hmm. 20 minutes, two to three times a week. So don't go out and try to do a five-hour ride with this or on your trainer with this. And a real important point that they make is more pressure is not necessarily better. And they showed in a couple studies that having too much pressure actually reduces gains as opposed to improves gains. So their recommendation is keep it out of pressure where you can complete whatever the protocol is. If you can't complete the protocol, it's too much pressure. And they generally said, lower pressure, you're still going to get benefits, you're still going to get gains. That's probably the way to go. And, and ultimately, their recommendation, this is a great thing to use, as you said, when you are have an injury mm-hmm. or in the off-season, you want to do some easy training and just get some gains without having to do some high-intensity intervals. Yeah, I, and it's, it's bang for the buck. It really is. Um, and you're, you're talking about short sessions with seemingly pretty solid return. So the Fast Talk podcast is now all about fringy marginal gains. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if, if we're talking about recovery from injury, this isn't marginal. Mm. This can really be a, a maximal. Let's get the final word on BFR to physiologist Adam St. Pierre, who talks about where he's seen it used. I am familiar with BFR. I've experimented with it a little bit on myself, though admittedly not enough to see effects positive or negative. I know anecdotally, you know, a lot of athletes who travel a lot really like BFR training for performance because you're, you're able to generate, you know, the physiological stimulus for improvement without lugging around hundreds of pounds of, of weights to lift. And so I know anecdotally, a lot of athletes have used it. Um, and talking to PTs, I, I think, you know, post-surgically, um, it's, you know, pretty widely accepted as a, a valued method 
of rebuilding strength. Again, because you don't need huge load. So it's a pretty safe way to rebuild after surgery. Again, I, I, you know, this is sort of anecdote and, and what I've heard. I haven't utilized it with with the team at MSU, just because we have we have a strength coach and I sort of defer to them, to that that gentleman on issues related to strength training. I have a set of bands and I've been thinking about using them for my my own strength training for some time now as I get higher into my 40s and <laughs> trying to keep up with the youngsters. Okay, shall we move on to our next? Uh, we probably want this, to. This has kind of got a zombie theme to it. Ooh. All right. Yeah, I see where you're going. Okay. Yeah. How to prevent death here. Are you Let's... talking about anti-aging supplements? Yes. Cover? And this was the one you were excited about. So Rob, take it away. I was excited about this one. I don't know if I'm excited about it now. Here's the thing, people. I <laughs> do tell. Do I tell. do pray tell. <laughs> I listen to podcasts as you should because you're listening to a podcast right now. And oftentimes I listen to podcasts about things that I'm not like intimately familiar with, right? It just expands my knowledge a little bit. And so I don't really listen to a lot of podcasts kind of in the health and performance space, but I do listen to like Peter Atia and, and some things like that, mostly because they're three hours long and it's a great fodder for when you're out on a long, long bass ride. You don't have to be switching music or whatever. Anyway... You know, there's a group of people out there, and it's probably a relatively small faction of people, don't get me wrong. Who, would you say fringe? <laughs> I would say a fringe who are operating on the fringe <laughs> in that they are very focused on longevity, on anti-aging, right? And there, there's a lot of research and a lot of science out there, as much as I love and hate that word. And a lot of these individuals are utilizing supplements, some even medications that are purported to decrease your aging, to increase your longevity, to increase your lifespan through a variety of mechanisms. And I don't necessarily want to talk about whether or not the supplements do that. That's not the point of this, right? If you're interested in that, then go listen to some of these other people out there. What I want to do is I want to talk about three specific ones, rapamycin, metformin, and statins, which are pretty widely described in this area. And I just want to bring balance to the conversation to say, hey, if you're into doing stuff like this, that's fine. Maybe there are long-term benefits to be had, but I want to discuss some of the short-term ramifications because everybody that listens to this podcast is an athlete, an endurance athlete at that. And these medicines and supplements, they probably have an effect on what's happening tomorrow in your workout. And I just want to make sure that people don't think that everything's as rainbows and unicorns as they take their fringe <laughs> supplements and medications. Thank you for that. I gave a pause for effect. I gave Rob a look just now. I think in talking about things that are fringe worthy on this episode, I think it's worth pointing out what qualifies as fringe and what could be cutting edge, mm. right? Mm. Because fringe actually carries a really intense stigma. It's kind of, you know, I come from an integrative health and medicine background and that word along with a slew of other words gets tossed at that part of the industry where yes, supplements or a variety of medications are used that aren't maybe used yet in conventional medicine. And then sure enough, five years later, conventional medicine is, you know, saying, oh, look at this brand new innovative thing that's <laughs> happening. And a whole other industry has been talking about it forever, but they were shamed or told they were crazy or that they were trying to profit from something. So I think while we're talking about that, especially because 
depending if you just drop the word supplements, it could cannonball into a pool of thoughts. You know, it could be people who are really excited about it, who are really happy with how the industry has improved standards and, and education and the quality, and then others who, you know, think it's pseudoscience. Mm-hmm. So what are you qualifying as fringe versus cutting edge? Could I just quickly add to that? First of all, I am using fringe in this episode in the context of I want some creepy music <laughs> and no other particular reason. <laughs> There's a very official definition for us but, today. I'm just going to add to that. Yes, I I think that's a good definition. And there are a lot of things that are considered fringe science. And it's important to understand they're fringe science because they haven't been fully researched. They haven't been fully evaluated. As you pointed out, some of them become mainstream as they get further research and go, there's actually something to that. Mm -hmm. Other things, they research it further and go, no, that doesn't pan out. Doesn't necessarily mean they're bad or good. It means it's an idea that just hasn't been fully researched yet. Yeah. And for me, I I think that there is a progression, right, that occurs here. And something may begin as fringe and then become cutting edge and then become mainstream. I love love the position you're taking over there. (laughs) And I guess my point and my thought with bringing up these three in particular is we might understand in some aspects well these medicines. For other ones, we don't understand them very well. But the application at this point potentially has a lot of ramifications that we don't know and we don't understand yet. So we're still in the fringe realm for me because there isn't enough information, but then also things are being looked at in a very myopic manner. And I'm not saying anything, as I said before, about the anti-aging properties of this. It could be the world's greatest thing for anti-aging. My concern is for people to think about the bigger picture though, right? Hey man, lighting that hornet's nest on fire probably gets rid of your hornet problem. Yeah. Probably burns your house down too, right? That's kind of the thing that I'm talking about here. Before we dive into the topic, let's hear from master coaches Joe Friel and Neil Henderson, who like Rob, give their big picture perspective and raise serious concerns about the ramifications. If we go back in history and look at all the things that we've been told we're going to improve our health, that turned out to be just exactly the opposite, that made us sicker. This is just another example of that. I don't know who this fellow is. I don't know what he's talking about. It may be great stuff. Maybe he's got the answer that nobody else has ever figured out. But I can go back to the early 1950s, and they were telling us that, you know, the problem was saturated fat, and that was why we were dying of heart disease. So they came up with a different kind of fat, a man-made fat. And this would be the key resolving our our heart problems, all the cardiovascular problems we were having back then, which are still with us today. What we found out, something like, I don't know, 15, 20, 25 years later, I've forgotten the timing on this, was that the things they came up with in the early 50s actually made our heart disease worse. Guess what? It's still on the market, and there are still people who buy it because they've learned from their parents, from their parents, from their parents, that this is the stuff that's going to prevent heart disease, and actually it causes heart disease. So whenever somebody says, this is the thing you should be taking, I tell them the thing you should be taking are exercise and natural foods. That's yep. the things you should be taking. You know, no, don't take any pills. I don't take any aspirin. I don't take any B vitamins. I don't take any pill whatsoever. I just take good exercise and a good diet. And that, by the way, take care of probably about 99% of all the problems you have in your life physically health-wise, just by doing those two things. Those are like the keys to health. The key to health is not taking a pill. That's not the key to health. 
So I would vehemently disagree with what he has to say. He may turn out to be right, but I would highly doubt it. I mean, ultimately, there's certain things and uh, sleep and stress management are probably, in terms of impact on longevity health markers, probably way more potent. And, you know, doesn't really cost anything in some ways to do that. Prioritizing and making changes in behavior for that to occur, probably going to have the biggest impact on performance. A super low-dose resveratrol, um, you know, wine, I think the amount that you need to actually drink to get the appropriate dose that they've seen and whatever the studies are, it's like 700 bottles worth, which again, I could maybe do that in the course of a lifetime, but not like daily. So, you know, I'm not sure if going down these like extreme substance manipulation is really going to do anything that can be, you know, extraordinary. One other thing I've got to point out before we say anything actually serious about this, except Rob has been serious. We were going to do a whole episode on anti-aging supplements, which Rob was very excited about. We then asked like seven guests their opinion on anti-aging for side interviews, and everybody's like, don't have a clue what you're talking they, about. Nobody would touch this with a 10-foot pole. And so Rob was like, I guess it's not going to be a primary episode. Also want to point out, I think we do have some sides for BFR but the reason we have sides for BFR is because we wanted to do an episode on something else that had an acronym that started with B and three letters. And because I'm horrible with an acronyms, I kept asking our guests about <laughs> BFR. And finally, after a while, Rob's like, you realize you're asking about the wrong thing? Oh, what was that? Let the like, imaginations awesome. run wild on that acronym. I love it. Grant and I just looked at each other like listing off the ones <laughs> in our head. I know. B Which I actually D can't no. remember because I'm horrible with an acronym. <laughs> <laughs> But so oh, I am going to say boy. Rob started this oh, by saying boy. we don't want to go into the mechanisms of these, but I hate to say it. The review I read on Metformin, not because of its, its coverage of Metformin, but its coverage of the physiology of aging hmm. was amazing. So before we move on, I am going to be giving you a nerd bomb here. Yeah, so Rob, no, let, think, let me know when you're ready. I think that we need to, Trevor. And I think that, you know, we can go from metformin into rapamycin because they're relatively similar in terms of mechanism. But yeah, take it away with metformin. Let's, uh, let's educate some people on how this stuff works because I think that that brings it full circle to why I'm concerned about the athletic ramifications yep. here. So I'm going to start with kind of a, a wow. Like I went into this going, I'm sure there is nothing behind metformin mm -hmm. in terms of its anti-aging properties. And when I read this review and all the mechanisms, like I said, amazing review, great coverage of something that is, you know, I've been researching a lot lately. So I loved reading it and kind of went, wow, I'm going to start by saying metformin actually has some real benefits here. And it's been demonstrated. There's a ton of research on it. Metformin has been around since 1958. So they have been studying it for a long time. But as you suspect, I'm, I'm going to first tell you the benefits, but there's going to be a giant qualifier here, mm -hmm. which the review gave the, the same qualifier. So we have talked previously on the show, and we're going to do a whole episode on this, on the impacts of AMPK and the P53 pathway and how that affects whole cell cycle. So, you know, cells need to go through proliferation then cell cycle arrest, and then apoptosis. Yep. So these are important stages in the cell. When a cell doesn't go through these stages, you start having problems. So if you're stuck in cell cycle arrest or senescence, that speeds up aging. But if you are stuck in proliferation, you see an increase in cancer rates. So you need to, the cell needs to go through these cycles. 
AMPK and P53 play a really key role in making sure these pathways happen. There's other things. So you're going to get to this with the rapamycin. There's a pathway, the, the mTOR pathway, which is impacted by rapamycin. And it's showing if that is constantly activated, you see inflammation, you see issues, you see cancer, you see a lot of different disease states. So you don't want to always be activating the, that pathway. Same thing with there's what's called insulin-like growth factor one. That can also lead to inflammation, lead to all sorts of issues. You want it some of the times, you don't want it all the time. So what they pretty systematically do in this review is go through these different disease states. And in this review, when they talk about the, and let me give the name of the review, sorry, very quickly, because it is a great read. A critical review of the evidence that metformin is a putative anti-aging drug that enhances health span and extends lifespan. And I'm going to point out, they actually talk more about health span. They don't talk about mm. lengthening. They talk about more how long you can go before you, you have diseases Increase, and yes, just show metforms. In fact, on, it was originally developed as a diabetes drug, but it has impacts on cancer. It has impacts on cardiovascular disease. It has impacts on neurodegeneration. And they, they pretty clearly show it has benefits for all those, particularly people who are already in a disease state. And what you're seeing is improvements in health span and lifespan and people that are taking these drugs for those disease. So the question they're asking is, if somebody's not in a disease state, does it also improve their health span and their lifespan? And the evidence seems to be pretty much yes, that what it's doing is ha it's activating AMPK, mm -hmm. which is really important. And as I said, covered that briefly in a previous episode. Actually, I talked for this about this longer with Dr. Larson on his podcast, if anybody wants to go check this out. But we're going to do a whole episode on this. Mm -hmm. One other impact that it has is on the, the vascular endothelium. So vascular system, your veins, arteries, that sort of thing. The cells that line your arteries and, and veins, they make up what's called your endothelium. It is a protective layer that, that makes sure that What's in your vasculature stays in your vasculature and you only transport out what you want to transport out. And it has been shown again and again and again that damage to the vasculature leads to heart disease. So basically what causes most heart attacks is a buildup of these atherosclerotic plaques. And the way they form is damage to that endothelium that allows macrophages, a particular type of immune cell, to get into the endothelium and then they turn into what are called spongy macrophages and they just accumulate and it creates this plaque. And then at some point that plaque breaks, releases all these inflammatory chemicals and that's what causes a heart attack. Listeners, this is a great time of year to expand your training knowledge. Join Fast Talk Laboratories now for the best knowledge base of training science on topics like polarized training, intervals, data analysis, sports nutrition, physiology, and more. Join Fast Talk Labs today and push your thinking and your training to all new heights. See more at fasttalklabs.com slash join. So funny, maybe aside here, we're going to bring this into the spooky realm because it's a fringe <laughs> episode. <laughs> <laughs> I taught in a cadaver anatomy lab for a long time. And when you're talking about arteries and veins, the easiest way for people to identify which is which is to squeeze them. And an artery, for people who don't know, feels like an al dente, like rigatoni, right? It bounces back a little bit. It has a little bit of a firmness to it. That's because of the musculature within the artery. 
And a vein feels like a well overcooked piece of pasta, right? It just sort of squishes. It doesn't bounce back. It doesn't do anything. But an atherosclerotic coronary artery feels like an undercooked pasta in that when you squeeze it, it has a little bit of give, but it kind of crinkles and crunches. There's a crunch to it. Yeah. And so it's amazing. Sorry, I'm taking us totally off topic here. It's amazing to actually feel these plaques within the cardiovascular system. It is the real deal without question. Dead bodies. I was a TA also in in the same class in uh, med school. And I remember touching those and you can hear yeah. the crunch and it, yep. it just, I mean, it's talk about freaky, horror like, stories. Yeah. That could be an episode. Oh my goodness. So here is a quote that they have from a book from 1954 by a Dr. Rudolf Altschul. I hope I pronounce it. He's Canadian. So it must be a great book, but this <laughs> of Grant just literally fell off his chair. But here, this is a great super quote, even cold though it's and super polite, yeah, the you. whole paper. it's a book it's a whole book oh god it's even longer this still applies and this is a great quote says because the majority of heart disease is caused by coronary thrombosis which is a lesion of the vessels supplying the heart proper we may as well cancel the first word in cardiovascular and conclude that in north america most people who die a natural death succumb to a vascular disease And so going back to metformin, metformin acting through AMPK seems to be very protective of the the vascular endothelium. So just a ton of evidence of the benefit of metformin. Wow. Fanboy over here. So (laughs) where's the big old butt? Yeah, I was going to ask, do you want the butt now? (laughs) I would love a big old butt. (laughs) So they even have this in the, in the paper and I'll read a couple quotes out of here, but Here's my thing, and this is uh, something I always say in nutrition, which is, and I'm going to give you an analogy, and I know nothing about cars, so anybody who really knows about cars might go, that's the dumbest analogy Dude, ever. Dude, you don't, you don't make analogies in areas that you're not. <laughs> well, I, I am, so I'm going to go with this. Stick with two wheels, Trevor. Oh, God. <laughs> no, no, because I couldn't think of a good bike analogy, unfortunately. So I'm going to give you cars. Okay, go. So here's my theory. Cars are designed to work with a particular type of motor oil. My guess, not being an expert. Yeah, Rob's giving me a look. So just go with me. Cars are designed to work with a particular motor oil. I'm all in, man. Okay. (laughs) My guess is you could operate your car pouring vegetable oil in there instead of the the proper car's motor oil that you buy buy at a car store. But my guess is also, well, that will function. It's going to damage the car. It's going to affect the longevity of the car. It's going to cause all sorts of issues. So let's say you then keep using vegetable oil and you find this great mechanic who can start adding other chemicals to this vegetable oil to be more protective of that engine, is great at repairing the damage to the engine. And you go, my God, what a miracle worker. What wonderful times that we can do all this repair to this car and keep the car working longer than I thought it was going to work. My point to that is why not just use motor oil? So why do we need an analogy to this? Just just say to people, this is really beneficial if you're screwing up your health beforehand. So just don't screw up your health beforehand. Isn't that you, what you're trying you're, to say? You're just angry with me. I'm today. not angry. It's just, a, it's just very, it's just get to the point, man. 
Right, but isn't that what we're? I, I'm, I'm yeah, just, I'm mostly I mean, just think, giving you a hard time, but yeah. And, and maybe you know because there are so many uses for metformin. For those I thought you were going to say vegetable oil. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I was just thinking about how I took care of my car in my early twenties. So that entire analogy, a little, um, and maybe currently a right little now, canola if you're, if oil. Honest, yeah. it's just painful. Um, no, I you know mm. I think though yes, prevention is best, right? You live, you learn. There's also a variety of conditions that metformin is used for, whether temporary or not so temporary, that if any of these athletes happen to be on anyway, then maybe this information is beneficial to, for them to know, like, hey, it has more of an impact than just what I've been prescribed for. Sure. And I do think one thing that's really important in this is not to be in a place where we say just being athletic is preventative. It hardly is. We've gone over this over oh, and gosh, over yeah. again on this mm-hmm. podcast that you can be incredibly, quote unquote, healthy in terms of athletic performance and be a terribly unhealthy individual. But let me give you a few quotes right out of this review where they go and they look at the combination of exercise and metformin. And they say, first, although both metformin and lifestyle changes, so they're referring to both diet and exercise, which I think is what you're getting at, were effective in reducing the risk of developing diabetes, lifestyle intervention was more effective. They then look at the combination of metformin and exercise, and they point out the results indicated that although both metformin and exercise improved skeletal muscle insulin sensitivity by 55 and 90% respectively, so more improvement from exercise, the combination resulted in only a 30% enhancement. So when you combined Uh exercise and metformin, it was worse than either one individually. So then they say the data suggests that exercise and not metformin is the ideal drug. So what I would point out is when you're talking about longevity with metformin, huge indicators of benefits, but it's people who are in a disease state, people who are not living a healthy lifestyle. And that's ultimately what this review concluded is that lifestyle, exercise and diet is the better prescription that's going to do more for both health span and lifespan. And you actually have to be careful because metformin combined with exercise actually hurts the benefits of both. Wow. That Look at was, that proud face afterwards. That was a really... <laughs> well, after all these attacks, I'm like, hey. It wasn't an attack. <laughs> that was a really long lead in to what I wanted to talk about. Perfect. So I'll just have Kelly cut out all the past five <laughs> yeah, that's minutes fine. of this conversation. <laughs> I didn't get to my point. <laughs> it took forever. This is a good place to hear from physiologist Dr. Brendan Egan about the impact of these supplements on training. I'm not aware of um, anything that suggests a, uh, an acute uh, negative performance effect of something like metformin or rapamycin. You know, the way I've uh, thought about those in the, the couple of studies, particularly in the relation to metformin, have seemed to suggest that there might be a blunting of the adaptive response to exercise. And that could be problematic in the sense that, you know, the reason we, we train um, is to ultimately enhance fatigue resistance and improve components of fitness that will contribute to performance. So if you're um, you know, taking an, an anti-aging drug, let's call it, um, with a view, you know, primarily focused on anti-aging, but ultimately it's negatively impacting the adaptive response to exercise, then you know, ultimately performance is going to be affected in, in the long run as well. So I do wonder about uh, the, the logic there. And uh, my exercise science bias would be that you know, a large component of uh, the benefits of exercise you know, are the anti-aging effects. Maybe it's my age that's beginning to think like this, but, you know, outside of the performance domain, exercise is going to have uh, benefits. And I don't think you want to do anything that is um, 
going to um, Im- impact on, on the potential benefits of exercise. So whether it's performance we're talking about or whether it's the adaptive response to exercise, I think we need to be careful about how we use those types of um, compounds and combined with exercise. The thing that I want to really latch on to here, Trevor, is the last thing that you said, right? That there is a blunting of the benefits of exercise by taking something like metformin, right? And and potentially a reason for this, and I don't know that we fully understand it at this point. We, you talked about uh, mechanisms of action with metformin by uh, activating AMPK. AMPK is going to affect the mTOR system, like you had mentioned in there. mTOR, what that stands for is mammalian target of rapamycin. Interestingly, they discovered the drug first, rapamycin, and then they injected it in people and they found the target later, right? Yep. Now, rapamycin is interesting. It's named that because it is found on the island of Rapa Nui, right? All the big heads stuck in the ground, right? You're saying this to us like... You have no clue what I'm talking about? I know what the big heads are. I just didn't know what the island was called. Yeah, Rapa Nui. I actually thought you said Ratatouille and I was thinking (laughs) of the Pixar movie. (laughs) No. No. I love it when Rob makes me feel like... It wasn't a rat in somebody's hat that helped (laughs) us discover this. (laughs) Anyway, let's see. Let's talk about why all of this stuff matters, right? As Trevor talked about before, mTOR is going to inhibit things like protein synthesis, right? And so as we are messing with these cell cycles, the most important thing in the world is that we want times of growth, we want times of repair. And when we are taking medicines like this, they are upregulating certain aspects of that and downregulating others. They're upregulating aspects that improve our longevity, but they don't necessarily allow the processes that make us better athletes, right? That cause protein synthesis, that cause us to recover and repair from exercise. And I'm lumping both metformin and rapamycin into this because they're both ultimately working on the mTOR pathway. And when we have other things that are going to work on the mTOR pathway and longevity, the first one that comes to mind for me is um, decreased caloric intake. Right? If somebody is in a constant state of being underfed, we see very, very similar results to what these drugs are doing. Metformin even decreases gluconeogenesis in the liver. It lowers your blood sugar mm-hmm. just like being underfed does. And I think that we do know from years and years of research, and Trevor, you might know more than I do on this one, that sure, in a chronically lower caloric, I don't want to say truly underfed, but lower caloric intake tends to increase your lifespan. But everyone in this room and everybody listening knows that there are detrimental effects to performance, right? And so if we can understand that concept of if I'm not eating enough, my workouts don't go well, I'm not recovering well, and then we're taking drugs that are mimicking this in our body, I get it might have benefits for longevity. And without going too deep, I'm making very big generalizations by tying this to being underfed. But I think that we can also understand that in the short term, there's going to be deleterious effects on the fringe to my performance. Yep. I mean, a variety of these medications may cause various nutrient deficiencies, right? Metformin and B12. Yes, exactly. um, You know, B12 deficiency, you're looking at anemia, fatigue, certain things that you really can't risk having when you're a a pro athlete. They're really no fun things when you're (laughs) trying to perform. Yeah. In any regard, not yeah. even as an athlete, as a parent that like, 
you're lacking B12, you're not going to do very well mm -hmm. with a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So I think, let me summarize my message. I think we're all saying the same message here, which is, yes, there, there are proven benefits to this, but when you look at the mechanisms, which they, they detail really well, basically it's impacting things that both healthy diet and healthy exercise act on. So basically it's trying to mimic the effects of a healthy diet and exercise, and it's not as good as the real thing. So that goes back to my analogy, which is, <laughs> I just had to say that because I wanted to see but, the look that, that I'd get. But does, but does it? But does it, but does it does really it. just use the proper oil, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. exercise and proper diet? I do think all this is super interesting and, and your lead in, I really enjoyed because I, it did take you 20 minutes to get to your point, but it was very educational. <laughs> so that's better than 20 minutes of completely wasting my life. But I do, <laughs> I do think the one thing that jumped is out. It, is it really though? No, no, it was. But there's one thing that, I, that in all seriousness, I think is really, really amazing is that when we talk about diabetes, exercise has a 90% reduction. 90%. That is amazing. And it just kind of comes back to, I hate to get this way, but it comes back to just move. Movement is medicine. There's so much to do with that. And just as a little side note, that's just mind-blowing that it's that beneficial. And we all know it is, but it's still really awesome to hear that. None of these are the magic bullet cure. They're not going to, you know, do anything overnight that's going to drastically, you know, impact you. And not only that, there could be some drawbacks and now things that you'd have to monitor in addition to the use of the medication. Yeah. The cell cycle and its impact on disease is a key area of research for master coach and physiologist, Dr. Sam Milan. Let's listen to him share some in-depth thoughts on anti-aging supplements and their impacts. Dr. San Milan, there's a lot of research involving uh, supplements and medications that people can take from an anti-aging standpoint. And on that list are metformin and statins. And I'm wondering from your perspective, what considerations do athletes have to have when they take a medication like metformin or a statin and it comes to their athletic performance? So that, that's a great question. And, and it's something that uh, is becoming more and more popular. So Metformin is a uh, widely used, it's been, you know, like nobody really quite understands the exact mechanisms of, of, of its work and the, and the multiple multifaceted mechanisms as well at the mitochondrial level mainly. It's been used for pre-diabetic patients for a long time. And some people might argue or might say that uh, it's a great anti-aging medication. We don't know the mechanisms yet, especially with populations without any chronic disease. Regarding to statins, I mean, it's been known very well that, that they save millions of lives because they are key to lower LDL cholesterol, the bad cholesterol, and improve cholesterol overall and, and decrease cardiovascular disease, um, uh, especially coronary artery disease, right? So, but again, it's just taking those in healthy people for anti-aging purposes. We don't know quite the mechanisms. Uh, we know the statins and the independence they're like a high uh, dose of statins or like a lower potency of statins, uh, they inhibit uh, complex one in mitochondria. So you don't want to inhibit complex one. We know that many, many uh, statins down the road, they significantly increase the risks of uh, diabetes because they're more diabetogenic, right? Especially what's called the high, the high intensity statins. And it probably could be because they, they inhibit mitochondrial function down the road. 
So it's it's a little bit of a counterintuitive or you know desiring to live longer when you you might down the road inhibit your mitochondrial function, which is a key process of of aging. Then you have other supplements that people are taking, like a uh, rapamycin, which inhibits mTOR, and this is something that um. Oof, uh, we still don't know. Uh, we know that mTOR pathway is key for life. And uh, I said, don't mess up with nature if you don't need to, right? If mTOR pathways, it's overexpressed in many forms of cancer and it's part of the proliferation and growth of cancer cells. And rapamycin might improve that condition. What people are saying like now, let's suppress glycolysis and proliferation all along, not all along, but significantly through rapamycin and it's, 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 it's a big, big deal right now there also. But again, it's just like, if, you know, like if your mTOR pathway functions well, don't mess up with that because you might overexpress other pathways, which might cause situations that you don't want. And, and knowing that one of the principles for pharmacology is like every single drug has side effects. And then lastly, last the supplement that is, is very big out there now is the NR, nicotinamide riboside which uh, is the precursor of NAD+, plus, right? So as we age, it's been shown that uh, the mitochondrial and cellular levels of NAD are decreased. And therefore, people say, okay, let's, let's supplement and try to get more NAD. There are no studies on longevity. The studies on longevity are done with mice, which they only live like two years. So it's difficult to extrapolate that. And they're very conflictive uh, results. But from more metabolic standpoint, NAD it's key for the continuation of glycolysis. And in fact, in cancer, it's overexpressed. NAD uh, is overexpressed in many forms of cancer, which are key for the continuation of glycolysis. So I raised a question about three years ago about all this, and we did a side experiment in the laboratory where we transfected tumors to mice. And uh, for 21 days, we supplemented them with uh, NR, and we were versus placebo right, versus just water. And then we were measuring the size of the tumor. And we saw about 15% increase in size of the tumor in the NR group with NAD supplementation with a precursor of NAD. We haven't published that. So it was just for ourselves. But recently, there is a study that has been published in showing that NAD increases metastasis when there's a tumor. So again, I don't play with mother nature because what if and obviously, we still don't have the science. That's, that's what I, I want to be cautious about all this, right? That what if someone has some tumor that is not diagnosed and they start piling up an NAD, NAD, NAD? Can that grow the tumor faster or elicit a faster metastasis? We don't have those answers, but uh, I think that I, we need to be cautious about all these anti-aging supplements. The science out there is not very developed. It's more pseudoscience at this point or science done with mice which they only live two years, you know, like, and it's kind of like, remember resveratrol, you know, like 20 years ago was like the big deal, right? It's, it's because studies with my show, they increase extra month of weeks to their life or, or so, and therefore extrapolate to humans, could, it's going to be, it was, it was the fountain of life, right? Resveratrol, I remember those days, right? And it's in the red wine. And therefore you need to, oh, red wine is good for you. Yeah. But then someone said, oh, no, 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 you, you need to drink four or five bottles of red wine a day to get the same amount of resveratrol. Which is not good for you. Exactly. Therefore, I'm going to give you a pill of resveratrol and, and someone make a lot of money and other companies as well. But hey, 
20 something years have passed and we know very well that resveratrol doesn't make any difference in terms of like people, you know, to live way longer, right? So are we now with the supplements, you know, in front of the, the new version of resveratrol or so, or, but these ones are more sophisticated because they really interact with different specific pathways that are key for, for life and mitochondrial function also. So I think I'll be cautious about this. I, I don't take those myself. I would not recommend taking those to others at this point uh, when they're healthy. That's those are my two cents. I don't know if they are worth it, but here they are. Shall we move on? What's the next one? Yeah, what, well, is, what is our, our next fringe <laughs> topic? Post-activation potentiation. This is something I have had on the list to cover for three years, and we have never gotten to it. So thank God we're finally here. It is not worth a full episode. We have asked a lot of people about this. Well, I think we have like nine sides for this. Oh, I'm, do we? I, okay, I'm, I am going to be picking and choosing for this episode. Okay, nice. Now, this is interesting because, again, the review that I read, that's a recent review. It's Post-Activation Potentiation in Endurance Sports, a review from yeah, 2018, so relatively new. What I'm going to do here is I'm going to give you the definition of post-activation potentiation that I was given in college, and I'm going to tell you what's in this review, and the review throws out what, <laughs> what I was taught and what you generally read in the past. So the idea here, here is what I was taught in college and what you see in most textbooks, is that your body has a protective mechanism. So if you are cold, you haven't done any work, and then you try to do a maximal exercise. So post-activation potentiation has some application to endurance sports. It's important to point out, you talk to any athlete in an explosive strength sport, like track and field or, or weightlifting, and mention post-activation potentiation, they're going to go, well, duh. Mm-hmm. Like it is critical to them. And most of the research is there, not in endurance sports. That's really important. But basically the idea is if you try to do a very hard effort, your muscles are going to say, I'm not ready. I'm not going to allow you to recruit all your muscle fibers. So you can't do as hard an effort as you could. If you do a couple near or maximal efforts and then try to go and race or whatever, then your body says, now you've potentiated me or the muscles say you've potentiated me. Now I'm going to allow you to recruit a lot more muscle fibers and you can do a stronger lift. So no weightlifter, if you're, let's say you're doing bench pressing, can hop on the bench cold and do their best lift. They have to do a few efforts, then rest a little bit because the balance between fatigue and post-activation potentiation is really important. And then they can do their best lift. Not with that attitude. <laughs> I'm just standing here watching Trevor talk about bench press. Yeah. <laughs> like he knows anything about it. You should have met me in my college days. Yeah, uh, No neck and some no neck days. <laughs> I used to be 230 pounds. Yeah, that's good no-neck period. Yeah. That's good so stuff. So was I. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see that. Not me. Never. You question this? Look at this. Look at the I'll question that twice. <laughs> <laughs> I love that she's wearing a shirt and a jacket so we can see we'll, nothing. We'll take it outside. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what's interesting. This review throws all that out says there's actually very little evidence of the neuromuscular recruitment which is what I read in my textbooks, what I've read in every other study. And they said in endurance sports, and I'm not going to get heavy in the science here, it's RLC phosphorylation on myosin. 
Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I had some of that for dinner last night. So let me explain this. <laughs> it took you that I long just to hear what that. I said. I just got it. <laughs> so let me give a very simple explanation. In our muscles, there are actin myosin. They're the, basically the think of them as a little hook that grab one another and pull each other closer, and that's how your muscle contracts. So myosin, the way this whole process starts is calcium binds to the myosin, and then it says, okay, now let's start acting and contract the muscles. So this RLC actually sensitizes myosin to calcium, so it allows it to contract harder. And they are saying that is actually what is responsible for the post-activation potentiation effect. Not neuromuscular. Yeah. Hmm. And, and I don't know where I stand on that because this is the first time I've ever heard this, hmm. but this is a recent review. I think that something that we can be sure of though, Trevor, is that doing a pre-movement, and oftentimes I think that it's heavy weightlifting, right? There's, there's a study yep. here, you know, from in our review from Silva et al. from 2014, where they added four sets of a five rep max leg press. That's very heavy yeah. lifting yeah. and a lot of lifting, yes. right? You would think that that would make you tired and it improved 20 kilometer cycling performance. Yeah. And fairly substantial, right? What was it around 6%? I don't remember offhand, but. Well, here's what's important about this review, because going with the standard definition of PAP, here's why it's important and why it's mostly in strength sports. That effect doesn't last long. Mm. It lasts 12 minutes. So if you use PAP, use all this potentiation for a five-hour road race, who sure. cares? Yeah. Right, right. It, it's all going to be wiped out pretty quickly. But... By their definition, they're actually showing potentiation by lower intensity, sustained efforts. Mm -hmm. And what they propose, and so they, they actually show this in marathons, in long bike races. And what they're proposing is there is this initial potentiation as a warm-up that strength athletes use. But there's another type of post-activation potentiation you see in endurance athletes where it's basically countering fatigue. Your muscles start to fatigue so to try to enable you to continue to go hard, you see this potentiation so that the fibers can, act, you can actually see a, a stronger contraction in the fibers. They still contract powerfully later in exercise. Which is very interesting. They'll throw in the last bit of the science and then you guys can tear all this apart. But my interpretation of all this, I still kind of like the original definition, the, the neuromuscular recruitment. For anybody in endurance sports, that only really matters if you're doing something really hard off the gun. So if you're a track athlete, you need to do this. A swimmer. If you're a swimmer, if you're a cross rider and that start is critical, you need to do this. And that's mm -hmm. where ahead of the event, just do some short maximal sprints and then give yourself a good 10 minutes of recovery. Mm -hmm. So not 20 minutes, but it's about eight, eight to 10 minutes and you'll have that effect and you'll have cleared out the fatigue. Mm -hmm. Let's quickly hear from national coach Lindsey Golich talking about how important PAP is for track cyclists. Potentiation, it is something for the, the track cycling group that we actually do focus on. So, you know, we have a very specific warm-up, and then even our sprinters, um, they have some specific uh, like bounding and plyometrics to really tap into that potentiation. 
prior to their competition to be really activated um, and I guess just switched on and ready to go. There is quite a bit of research, um, you know, in the strength and conditioning world on this potentiation on doing it correctly and being able to, you know, effectively move more weight or move a weight faster, depending on what your outcome is. Um, and so what we found when we're, we're really trying to work at, look at the sprinting aspect of it, is that, you know, we're trying to move our weight, the body weight and the bike as fast as possible. So that potentiation does become uh, beneficial and impactful in really our overall performance. There's a few things though, that I found over the years is that we have to figure out what works for each athlete. Obviously, you know, when we're doing strength training and that crossover to cycling, there's a, a little bit of a, a gray area there just on the loads of, of, of that we're seeing. So I think it has to be more muscle specific for our athletes for cycling for it to really be beneficial. And then also, you know, there's a fine line of not doing too much because then that actually just becomes overly fatiguing. Yeah, I think that we're seeing, you know, maybe up to a half hour's worth of work. So like a cross race is, is maybe a little bit long overall, but you get a lot of benefit in the beginning here. Sure. Yeah, I'm just going back to this 20 kilometer cycling trial. You were right, 6% improvement. Great job, mm -hmm. Grant. Proud of you for doing your homework. <laughs> Uh, you know, and that's a 20, 20 kilometer cycling time trial. Do you remember how long it took them? Because I'm going to guess about a half hour. Depending yeah, I on, don't remember, okay, but that's, yeah. a, that's usually about right. So yeah. about a half hour there. And so there is a pretty big range of benefit, right? We can use this with people who are sprinting hundred meters, you know, on up to high intensity efforts, maybe up to a, a half hour. But Trevor, I think you're right. We're talking a five hour long race where nothing important happens yeah. until hours in PAP isn't for you. Right. Well, plus there could be a, I mean, are we talking about a fatigue piece and, and those, but I, I do think just in general, it speaks to the concept of warm up in general that we come across over and over again. And, and you get this in a lot of, I don't even want to say beginner athletes, you get it in, in athletes across the spectrum where it's, I don't want to waste my energy on that mm -hmm. because then I won't have it for this. Yep. And for years when I was coaching swimming, that was something that to me was, oh, it's an education piece. As somebody comes farther along in the sport, it becomes very obvious. You need to put the energy in early. You get that later. But I've been blown away as levels go up. There's still that mindset in levels as we go up and we go up and we go up. And just across the spectrum, the, the benefits of warm-up, whether it be purely from an action in the musculature rather than neuromuscular or it's heart rate or it's mental, the benefits are through the roof. I think this is interesting too, Grant, because it's changing what we think about warm up, right? And, and, and I remember I was back in middle school and I can remember being at track meets like, I'm not running a step before my event. <laughs> right, I, right, I right. have this essential energy that I, I can't it. be using yeah. up, you know, just yeah. like hanging out with my friends in the sun on the bleachers, you know? And then we all, I shouldn't say we all, a lot of people learn that warm-up becomes important mm -hmm. uh, to be beneficial for our performance. But I think that for me a long time, a warm-up was like a 45-minute to an hour-long ordeal before my hour-long cyclocross race. Sure. I'm warming up just as long as I'm racing. Sure. And I think that there is now a more modern prescription that is significantly shorter. You don't have to be out there for 45 minutes of varying intensities and high and low and, mm -hmm. you know, 
but we can do this in, in 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes. We can include some of these really hard efforts. It's changing what warm-ups are. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of things that kind of go along with that. You know, one of the things that I've started to move to in terms of a warm-up with athletes is get your heart rate monitor back on. I want to see your heart responding. You know, mm-hmm. like the day before, the day of, I want to see your heart rate come up as a very simplified version of this, which can be done in a lot less than an hour. But by the other side of that coin, I don't know if Trevor will start nodding his head, but as I've gotten older, that... I am definitely nodding my head. He might not agree with you. <laughs> that, that 30 minutes of just easy riding makes things creak a hell of a lot less, makes things feel smoother. I guess it's akin to putting vegetable oil on my joints. I feel uh. a lot better as I go through that. <laughs> Is that before or after you put the blood flow restriction cup? <laughs> I don't know, man. That would be interesting. Blood flow restriction as a warm-up. You had me at as I'm getting older. No, as I'm getting older. <laughs> there is one last thing to point out about this, if I'm reading this review correct, and, and there there's some validity to this, which is that short, high intensity, like doing those sprint efforts, you know, near maximal efforts potentiation seems to be more in the fast twitch muscle fibers. Mm. So that is something to use if you have to be explosive off the gut. Right. Sure. But what they show is this calcium sensitization that they're talking about occurs that potentiation actually occurs in slow twitch muscle fibers. Oh, so my takeaway from this is if you are getting ready for a much more aerobic steady event, so let's say you're getting ready for a 40 K time trial, drink a lot of milk. Sure. Please Calcium. do not. Just go with it. Come on. <laughs> okay. I do. Like, where'd that come from? <laughs> well, that would be a fringe <laughs> recommendation. Yeah. Right. Macro solution to a micro problem. Come on. But if you're getting ready for a hard, steady, more aerobic effort, like a 40K time trial or a 10K run, something like that, they show that this potentiation happens with steadier... Um, hardish effort, so around threshold. So my takeaway was getting ready for an event like that, your warm-up should include a few like five-minute efforts around threshold, and you'll get more of that potentiation in the slow-twitch muscle fibers. Yeah, yeah, I like it. You know, looking through the studies that they have on here, what I find interesting is that the potentiation exercise is quite varied what you can do. Some of these studies looked at a 10-second maximal voluntary contraction of of your triceps, I think, for this particular thing. Uh, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I'm getting swole. Uh, others, others were 400-meter runs. Uh, we talked about the heavy weightlifting. There are multiple ways to incorporate this, and, and maybe people, if they're looking to incorporate this into their training, think about something that's relevant to the sport that you're doing. Think about something that's relevant to how you want to improve your performance, and think about something that's probably going to be safe and effective for, for what you're doing, too. I don't know that I want to be like at the start line or at my car unloading a thousand pounds worth of weights because that's how much I squat, you know? Just squat your car. I can just squat my car. <laughs> <laughs> Squat me? A bowling squat ball. Like it's squat bowling ball. <laughs> You're just going to squat like me. <laughs> Chris would have said it. Squat you. That's it's where I was like... going. Squat you. I think one of the Lord. takeaways here that you're you're talking about with that the surprising number of athletes beyond their youth have this concept of if I use it, meaning a warm-up, I lose it. Whereas, that essential energy idea, yeah, yeah. Whereas we're saying with this, 
if you don't use this, you're losing out. Yeah. And, and anecdotally, we felt it in those shorter, high intensity events. I feel like when I don't warm up, I fall apart and nothing works the right way. But I, yeah, I, there's a lot to that. And I think. Isn't it's the neat. beginning of the event, the warm up? Depends first on lap. how long the event is. It's the first, the first <laughs> lap for me is the warm Rob's up. like, first lap doesn't count, right? It's also my best lap. So <laughs> kind of a one lap wonder. <laughs> Finally, let's hear again for Dr. Stacy Sims expressing some potential concerns to be aware of if you want to try taking advantage of PAP. Yes and no. So if you end up going too hard <laughs> before your event, then it can backfire. Um, we use it a lot in training, like doing heavy resistance training and then going and climbing a hill because then you get better activation and recruitment. So it's a really useful training strategy. But for a warm-up for a race or something... I try it out first, see how your body responds. Because you have vagal nerve and a whole bunch of other confounding variables that can affect how your body responds in race situation. And so I'm very interested in asking you, because in past conversations with you, you've brought up the fact that there, there are certain time points where women have a little harder time to get those muscles to activate. They feel much flatter. Do you mm -hmm. think there is a value of getting in some harder efforts at, at those points in the cycle? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so it's the second half of the cycle where you're losing that neuromuscular connection because of the change in your hormones. So it is a useful try-it-out strategy, but I wouldn't blanket tell people to go do it right away. Try it out first before you start putting it into your race day situations. So, Trevor, what about this is actually fringe then? Because I can't hear any disagreement. I think what's fringe about this is how the potentiation works is what you were getting at a little bit of what actually is going on. It's, it may not be neuromuscular. It may be. Well, oh, so just unknown. The, 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 the important thing for you is do you want what sounds like a good answer or do you want the real answer? I want both. Yeah. Okay. You just gave a good answer. The real answer is we came up with the fringe concept idea. <laughs> we knew that the anti-agent supplements oh, and the shucks. BFR fit. Okay. And then we were like, we need a third topic. I love it. Okay. And yeah. we're like, yeah. we haven't covered PAP, so let's cover it. Well, Perfect. And I think that this is something, Griffin, going back to what you had said before, what's fringe and what's cutting edge. And maybe it's a little bit more blurry on this one. But for me, a fringe aspect of this is what can be done prior to endurance exercise, which is what we're primarily sure. focused on. Okay. I would never have thought that doing four sets of five <laughs> rep max would improve a half hour time trial. It, my mind has a hard time yeah. wrapping itself. No, I no. totally believe it, but that is not a recommendation. I think that any coach would ever give to an yeah. athlete before now. I'm going to do it this weekend. We're yeah, going to go to the world cup this weekend and <laughs> give that's, it a try. You, we're going to just squat. There okay. you go. Are you guys ready? Always. We, we have a fringe <laughs> Halloween bonus. We have a Halloween bonus? We have a bonus? What? We were this, not prepared this is this. our zombie study. I'm getting a bonus? Huh? This is our zombie <laughs> study because you thought blood flow restriction was dead, but it's coming back to life. Are you ready for this? I found a study. Here's the title of it. Can blood flow restriction training benefit post-activation potentiation. Oh, <laughs> my God. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. I, I I brought up BFR for... Mm -hmm. I said it. You brought it up because you wanted to talk about vegetable oil. Always. And are you ready for the answer? Yes. And the answer is yes. 
Whoa. But remember how we said that the effects of post-activation potentiation when you do the high intensity only right. last like 12, 15 seconds? Yes. It comes on quicker with BFR. Goes away and it quicker. lasts much shorter period of time. It lasts like six to eight minutes. Oh. So you'd have to be like on the start line doing a little BFR squat. Yes. And then take it Please. off and go. Please, for the love of God. I want to see Grant do this. Oh God. It would it would make my year, Grant. My year. I'm in. I'll be I'll be there for it. Anywhere <laughs> you want to do it, I'll be there for you. I'll be there for anyway. I was really hoping someone would sing on this episode. Mm. I so here's a question for you, Trevor. We're looking at these three fringe-worthy uh, different areas here. If these were to take off or become more mainstream, what does that say about endurance sports and the future of endurance sports? Medications, restricting blood flow, squatting at the start line. <laughs> this, this is, yeah, I just had this image of a person on a trainer at the start line hooked up to blood flow restriction Doing sprints will pop in metformin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and my answer to you is it's going to a real dark, awful place. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's this is what happens at a certain point when you go down all the obvious rabbit holes. You start to have to try to go down these other ones. I, I mean, and unfortunately for endurance sports, I think this is where we start to get into that really big gray area between performance enhancement and performance enhancement, like which one's legal and which one's not. I think that's my point is, doesn't this seem like the biggest slippery slope? Yes. Or how is this not even already there? <laughs> it is already there, Trevor. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I think for something, you know, we look at some of these things and listen, long ago, I, I remember saying about the Balcor, the juiced home run era in baseball. And when we talked about Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire and they were taking something that wasn't officially banned or wasn't officially a steroid, you put the athlete in a place where they go, is this legal? And the person they're with goes, it's not illegal. You know, you hit these realms a lot in endurance sports. And I don't know that any of these three are in that realm, but it doesn't take much to go to that place. Yeah. Yeah. I would say it's putting them in their place. So just going through them, BFR, reading all that research about the benefits of it. Am I going to go out and buy the device and be using this in my basement? No. But what you used it for? You were injured and it helped you with your recovery. I think that's great. Right. And they talk about that in the review. Metformin. Am I ever going to take it? Despite the fact that I know it benefits all these things that I'm researching and, and trying to figure out a benefit. No. Sorry. <laughs> Never going to take it. Somebody has diabetes, has a, one of these serious diseases. Would I potentially recommend this? Yes, potentially. PAP is probably, to me, the, the least fringy of all. Yeah, them. I, I use it all the I mean, time. that's what Griffin asked right out yep. of the gate. I will tell you, you know, crits, starting is critical. If you end up at the back of the field in a crit at the start, you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. And I don't start well. So before every crit, I do five, six, six-second sprints, get that PAP effect so I can start better. And I time it. Like I said, I watch my watch and go, you know, make sure I'm finishing my sprints about eight to ten minutes before yep. the start of the crit. Then I go to the start line. Then something screws up. They make a stand on the start line for right. 20 minutes, and I don't see any of the benefits anyway. You're doing these sprints on the bike? You're not running these sprints, right? I'm doing it on the bike. Okay. I just want to call to attention that before we started recording, I said my visual 
of BFR is in a dark room. And Trevor just talked about doing BFR in his basement. basement. And I just looked both of you like, hello, this is what I was talking about. It gets weird. It gets dark real quick. Listen, you're going to try BFR, okay? (laughs) And in the basement of this building. Whoa, that's Whoa. the creepiest thing ever. No. All by yourself. The- <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to lock the door. We're going to lock the door. Honestly, the excitement in your eyes right now does oh, say good. that yep. you're locking yep. the door. It, no, we're going to lock the door and we're not going to use vegetable oil on the hinges. So it's going to oh creep. And then we're going to record her in like one of those black and white security cameras. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Perfect. And mm-hmm. it's going to move the whole thing. Could I just say with the people who own the building gave us the tour of the building. We were telling them <laughs> we needed a video studio. They're like, oh, we think you can use the basement for it. (laughs) And Rob and I walked down there and looked at the basement and we're like, you realize we're not making slasher movies. We're not making Blair Witch 2. Perfect. That is the creepiest basement anywhere. I can't wait to see it. I'm very excited. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Tweet at us at Fast Talk Labs or join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com. Learn from our experts at Fast Talk Labs or help keep us independent by supporting us on Patreon. For Grant Holicky, Griffin McMath, and Trevor Connor, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening. <laughs> it always feels like somebody's watching me. It's about as high as I can go. Oklahoma. <laughs> oh, boy. Somebody's watching me. <laughs> That's where we're ending it. <laughs>